Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. The public doesn't see this as a police issue, a law enforcement issue, a criminal justice system issue. They see it as a news issue, and you are not allowing me to live a fruitful life today because of the person that I was five years ago. It may seem counterintuitive, but one of the most important issues facing newsrooms is the ability for them to quickly, fairly, and transparently unpublish stories that they have published. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Deborah Dwyer is a 2021 Reynolds Journalism Institute resident fellow at the University of Missouri. She just told me she's back home from the fellowship, but her focus has been to create tools that will help newsrooms ethically and practically handle unpublishing requests from the public. Deborah, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So first off, tell me a little about yourself. How'd you get interested in journalism? Sure. Well, I think I, I, was born this way. I actually went into undergrad thinking that I was going to make my father happy and pursue law, but I had been involved in my high school newspaper and really found myself drawn back to journalism and just the practice of communications in general and how important it was. I saw it as fundamental, right? Communications fundamental to the entire world and how it works, but journalism, especially in its role in democracy. And I think I was a right fighter and someone who asked why from an early age. So finally shed the pre-law idea and I became the editor of my college paper. I had a nice stint. It was somewhere between a regular job and an internship at my local paper where I was a police reporter and a general assignment reporter. I started teaching journalism at my, at my alma mater in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And then I went back for my master's and got my master's in journalism. Ultimately, I spent 25 plus years in the communications industry in a variety of roles, but I always stayed involved somehow in my local newsrooms and in journalism. And in 2016, I finally decided that journalism's just my passion and it's what I wanted to do. So I, or what I wanted to support, I should say that. So I went back to get my doctorate degree to study journalism practices specifically as they relate to ethics in kind of the digital age. Right. And that has led me on this path to where I am today. Which brings us to unpublishing and I kind of know what this is, and when I saw that this is something you were working on, I immediately wanted to get you on the, on the podcast because this is kind of one of those important things that not a lot of people are thinking about, but is really kind of important. So let's start with the definition. You know, what, what do you mean when we talk about unpublishing? I'm so glad you asked that because <laughs> unpublishing sounds like such a simple word, and it has connotations that are inaccurate. I say it's a simple word, but it's actually a wicked problem. If you know about the concept of wicked problems, this is definitely one. So the definition I use, and, and there's some key pieces in it, is this is the act of deleting, obscuring, or significantly altering. So it's not just removing, which is why it's contradictory to its name. 
and it's factual content. This is content that was accurate when it was published, may have changed since then, but it was true information. So this is not a correction. This is not an error. We already have policies and practices for that in newsrooms. And so it's obviously been published online previously, but it has to be in response to a third-party request, typically prompted by personal motivations like embarrassment or privacy concerns. So a couple other things to note about that. The reason I say third-party request is because, again, the phenomenon of unpublishing that we're talking about is really, it's something that has arisen because of pressure from outside of the newsroom, typically by members of the public, right, to unpublish content about themselves. But I say third party because it actually can come from within the news organization, and that's really difficult. I know of situations where a publisher stops by and there's been an advertiser that's made a request and, you know, what newsroom isn't trying to protect their revenue right now. Several situations like that that I could go into. So it could be that your advertising department is putting some pressure on you because they're trying to make a sale, whatever. And it's also very, very important to realize that this is not just text. When people first started talking about in publishing, it, it was kind of simple to think about, well, you just take an article down, right? But this is entire articles, portions of articles, just a quote from a source, just names, right, of adults or children, could be photos, could be graphics, could be captions, and it's also broadcast. We haven't even gotten into talking about podcasts, which is the next area I hope to tackle, just making people think about it. But broadcast, especially, you know, radio and broadcast organizations have a whole nother set of issues that they have to deal with, especially when it comes around transparency. And we'll talk about that. But that that in a nutshell is what we're talking about. So in publishing is not just about removing, and it actually is not just a post-publication issue. There are some pre-publication practices that journalists could begin to implement that would really help on the back end, but we can get into that later. (laughs) Okay. It seems mostly what we're talking here about is more of an ethical situation as opposed to maybe a legal one. I mean, obviously, if if there's a an error that needs to be taken down, there are policies in place to, to address that and to make a correction. But is this really more of an ethical concern? Is this something that we're sort of dealing with in this digital environment? Well, it is. I warn newsrooms that if we don't figure it out, someone's going to figure it out for us. And that someone is going to be the government. And we don't want that to happen, right? And I say that because, and Michael, we might not want to get into all of this, but there are mugshot legislation that's being passed in many states that curtail who can have access to arrest records. And a lot of it is to hopefully quell the mugshot extortion industry online. But some of the clauses, I did a study on this and reviewed all of the the legislation In many cases, it doesn't specifically call out that the media is excluded. And so there are some some journalists who used to kind of casually say, well, this is not a problem because the First Amendment protects us. But that's not really true. One, because 
our legal system leans hev- more heavily these days on protecting personal privacy, and they are not as lenient with the press as they once were. And also, legal restrictions within news organizations often come into play. So even though it might not be a libel situation, for example, many news organizations have legal people who, especially larger ones, obviously, that may get involved in unpublishing decisions. And in fact, I know one organization who told me off the record that all of their unpublishing requests now it's mandated that they go to legal instead of the newsroom. And that's exactly what I want to quell, right? Because news organizations do need to be making these decisions, but they need to be making them with a clear set of policies that are well explained and, you know, to the public and are implemented consistently. So did that answer your full question? Yeah. And the other thing I'm thinking about, because you kind of address the the defense to say that this is the, you know, the First Amendment protects me, you know, these mugshots, these, you know, arrest records, many of them are online on county or state websites. You know, I'm a reporter and I, you know, cover some crime and, and I put this information that I got from court records into a story. And now somebody comes and, and, you know, tells me that I need to take it down. You know, if that information is on, on like a, a state system, you know, why should I be obligated to take that down? Right. That is part of the justification that many newsrooms used to use when they were hard, more hardliners about unpublishing. Many of them used to say, we absolutely won't do it. It's anathema to the, the values and the practices of the profession. And there's some truth to that, right? And I've been studying this since 2016, so I can argue just about any angle and play devil's advocate from either side. (laughs) There's good reasons to argue not to unpublish at all, and then there are good reasons and exceptions, right? Or particular cases of types of content that we might consider. But you're right, that information is available. But what you're talking about is practical obscurity, right? So that information has always been available down at the police station, for example. So it was available, but it was practically obscure because nobody's going to go down there, right, and look it up. Same thing with print papers back in the day. You could go down to your news organization and ask for somebody to go pull something out of their morgue. But nowadays, you don't have to do any of that. So it's really the accessibility. It's not that, yes, it is available other places, but when it is amplified by a news organization, that is typically what's going to hit the top of Google search results. And so therefore, that is what is driving this conversation. And and I had an editor just the other day say it she had someone who was very angry and was saying, you were ruining my life. And this particular editor said, I found it so fascinating that the police didn't ruin their life, right? Um, It's somehow this is not on the, or the public doesn't see this as a police issue, a law enforcement issue, a criminal justice system issue. They see it as a news issue and you 
not allowing me to live a fruitful life today because of the person that I was five years ago. Is there a, a distinction between public officials? If, if we, you know, we've got a city council member who has some arrest on his record and we report that as compared to just some average guy who, you know, may have had his license suspended because he made some poor choices about driving while drunk, you know, five years ago. Is there a distinction? I mean, do we still go ahead and publish the uh, councilman's just because he's a public figure? Well, that's a sticky wicket. And it's (laughs) fascinating because some unpublishing policies that we're beginning to see, and I really applaud the news organizations that are starting to be more public with their policies, because I can tell you, even very large news organizations who used to say, Uh, We don't unpublish at all. I have it on good authority that, yes, they did. And so this operating without any transparency is very scary. That is the scariest part, both from a journalism ethics issue and a public trust issue, right? We're playing with fire already with public trust in the news media, and so we really don't need to do anything that's going to damage that. But when it comes to, to public versus private officials, Some news organizations do exclude public officials in their unpublishing policies. They will say, you know what, if you're any type of public official, this doesn't apply to you, or maybe also certain crimes, right? If you've committed a felony, this, that, and the other thing. Here's the problem with that. News about someone who they were, part of the argument of that, of this is I am no longer the person I was, but that also could mean that I am no longer the type of person that I was. So you may not be a public official now and you get charged with something and let's say you're guilty, right? As a private person, you may be able to convince a news editor to take it down, But what if you go into public office in 10 years and now that information has been, quote, erased, right, from we won't say your your actual record, of course, right, because it may still it's still sitting somewhere on the law books, but it's not easily available. And here's the problem with that, Michael, is I just conducted the only national survey of American adults about unpublishing, and it was about 80 questions. It was really in-depth about how they feel about it and how they feel about news organizations that engage in it and what type of accountability do they expect, right, from journalists. And I found it fascinating because one of the questions uh, came back that 79% of respondents, and there were 1,350 Expect to find a news article from 10 years ago about a crime committed by a private person who now is running for political office. So do you see the problem with that? Mm -hmm. We don't know the future value of information, nor do we know the path that someone's life is going to take. So it's great. And I applaud the additional scrutiny for public officials and public figures. I think that makes a lot of sense when you're considering unpublishing policies, but it it does not address what happens in the future when, when people may shift into a different type of role where we would expect them to undergo more scrutiny. 
do you see this applying to social media as well? Because, you know, there's so many stories now that are kind of driven by things that people say on social media that they regret, you know, some people lose their jobs, et cetera. Is there any expectation, you know, in social media or maybe even just a blog? I have a blog and this is what I'm writing. The news organization, it takes, you know, information from a tweet or it takes information from somebody's personal blog. Does that have sort of the same considerations? Well, there's so many factors to that, right? And one of the issues with that that I distinguish a little bit is that that information often is voluntarily shared by the individual that then might get picked up in the news media, right? So it's a little different, especially than a, a crime report where they obviously didn't want them their name in the paper or on the nightly news. So it's a little different. Last survey of journalists was in 2016 on this topic, but journalists typically see what they call source remorse, which is somebody contributed either via social media or directly to the reporter, right, voluntarily for some type of article or story. And now they regret what they said and they want it down. Journalists usually see that as like the lowest level priority of unpublishing requests. Similarly, unpublishing from a social media standpoint is often different because if you've picked up something that someone has voluntarily shared, then there is less tolerance both on the public and from journalists to be willing to unpublish that later on. People kind of feel like if you if you voluntarily did it, then too bad, right? If it is something that you didn't voluntarily provide, that's when most people start to see that maybe your unpublishing request has some more clout. But your point is well taken because one of the issues that newsrooms sometimes get into is well, we can take it down off of our site, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't shared on social media, right? Somebody could have even taken a screen capture of it. And frankly, what I'm discovering with a lot of news organizations is if they have an app, a news app, for example, especially if it's, if it's run by a third party, which most are, they may not be able to get that information back even from their news app, right? If they're a paper and there's a PDF of the paper that's searchable on their website, it doesn't come out of that, right? We're not going to start seeing big black boxes over published content. So what do you do about that information? And it's one reason that I try to tell people, be careful what you promise. You want to underpromise, if anything. You can't just tell someone, yeah, we took care of it and we took it down because the public doesn't understand what that means. And inevitably, we can go still find that information. For example, one of the things that we do where I work at, we'll publish, the police will put out a release about a missing person, you know, a silver alert, you know, somebody who's in danger. And we use our site to sort of amplify that request to try to get you know, let people know that there's a, a missing person in the community that they should look out for. And then our, our policy is once that person is found, not only do we update, we don't take the post down, we update it 
so we remove the person's name. If there's a photo, we take the photo out and we just say, you know, this person was a 29 year old man who was missing, reported missing in New York City, was police say that he was found. So that, you know, people who find that link later on, you know, in social media or whatever, when they go to it, it doesn't identify the person who's missing. That's wonderful. And in fact, I'm going to pass that along as support for some guidance I just gave a newsroom that I'm working with because they had implemented a policy and they were very proud of it. And they should have been. It was making progress. Right. But one of the things they had done is especially if police were looking for someone, you know, a suspect or like you said, someone was missing. It's a public good thing. Right. They wanted to publicize that. And that was the only way they were saying before an actual arrest, that kind of thing, or charges were filed, we would use a mugshot or somebody's name, right? So, but I asked them because they said if there's a public safety issue, basically. Right. And I said, well, what about when the public safety issue is no longer there? Right. Like you said, the person has been found or maybe they weren't the right person, whatever it is. And it was crickets. Right. Because they hadn't thought that far ahead. Like, oh, right. If we're saying we're only going to do it again, this gets into that temporal nature of news. Right. It was news when you publish it. But you, you got to think about to some extent, not necessarily is it news today, but is there value in the information today? And I think what you're talking about, anonymizing the information, is a, a very good alternative to unpublishing on the whole. Yeah, I think so. So we've been talking a little bit mostly about, you know, why maybe people would come to you and what circumstances would leave them to make this sort of request. Let's sort of shift to you know, what should newsrooms be doing? What policies should they set up? What approaches can they take in responding to different types of requests? And also, you know, where does transparency figure into this? Right. Transparency is huge. And, and it's funny, that is one piece of my RJI fellowship. I had three tools I was hoping to create in partnership with several newsrooms. And one of the three did not happen. And it's because it was a transparency report, much like if you've ever looked at Google's transparency report that they do in the European Union because of the right to erasure law. I won't call it the right to be forgotten, unfortunately, mm -hmm. because that's not its name. And again, it overpromises because it is not forgotten. In fact, we can talk about that if you want to, but the EU's right to erasure is actually more limited than what American news organizations are doing willingly with unpublishing. So the first thing they need to do is decide, really, truly, will you unpublish at all? Some organizations I have seen still say we will not do it right? We're not going to do it. Now, I can typically trump them by immediately saying a couple of things, but one of my examples is if someone were to ask you to remove something, you go back and forth, and ultimately they threaten suicide. And I've heard of this happening four or five times with various newsrooms. And in each of those cases, even if the newsroom was unwilling to unpublish, 
initially when the request was made and they were going back and forth, they all acquiesced. And what was fascinating about that, though, was they also asked for some substantiation by the person's mental health provider just to to have something, right, to be able to justify their decision. But will you unpublish at all? And if you will, in what circumstances is really, really important. You would not believe the unpublishing policies that I read that start with, we're the first draft of history and we don't believe in altering the public record. However, (laughs) in some occasions, right? And so you really have to decide where do you fall? And if you're, if you're going to do it, then own up to that. But we need to know the parameters around it then, right? So what requests will you consider? And instead of offering people very hard and fast rules, because I do think it's important that newsrooms, working journalists, also determine what's right for themselves. Although I do hope that we can get to a point where we have some very basic, consistent standards across the industry. I think we need that. That's part of journalism is we rest our professionalism a lot on our standards and practices, right? That they are consistent. And without those, because we're not credentialed, we don't have an MD after our name or some sort of certification, that's really, really important. And so instead of hard and fast rules, I usually ask some questions and that's, so will you unpublish? actually answer that truthfully. What requests will you consider and what won't you? So that gets into the questions of, are there particular types of crime that you won't? Some people say, well, we'll only consider misdemeanors. Some people will say it has to be six years old, for example. Some people will say, like we spoke about a minute ago, we won't do it if you're a public official. So really sitting down and thinking about what requests you will consider. And again, those were all just crime related that I mentioned. And we ought to point out that while that drives a lot of unpublishing requests, it is by no means the only topic. You would be surprised at some of the requests that I have heard. And some of them have to do with public safety, right? Someone is feeling threatened. Someone's found some information about them, that kind of thing. But often too, it might be, I got divorced and we have a wedding announcement and we placed it in your paper, kind of like an ad, right? We paid for it. So now we want it down. So what do you do about those types? What do you do when a source comes back and says 10 years after the fact, hey, this is hurting my business, Would you be willing, you know, it's a feature story. What does it really matter? Will you take it down? You've got to think about those kind of things. Another big question is who does the legwork to verify what you need? What do you need? What type of documentation or external verification do you need to act on someone's request? And who's going to give that to you? Or are you going to go find it yourselves? For example, I know newsrooms that just simply say you have to provide us documentation that either, for example, your criminal case was your charges were reduced, your case was dismissed, or maybe even it was expunged, right? You've got to provide us that documentation. We're not going to go do that legwork for you. 
The problem with that is sometimes people don't have the means or the agency to get that information. And especially with expungements that that runs into a myriad of problems. But other news organizations, often bigger ones that have more more resources at their disposal, will do some of that legwork for people. Right. So that's a big one that gets into your bottom line. And then I mean, there's a million questions that you need to consider, but the last one I'll mention is what alternatives might you consider that don't go as far as unpublishing content completely? For example, you might update an article, right? Just at the top, an editor's note that simply says, this case, ultimately, the charges were reduced, right? Or the case was dismissed, something that provides an update to that content. And, and my research shows that the American public expects that in perpetuity, just about, that information will be updated. So it, it's a really fascinating thought about how journalists become these information managers and, and custodians of this ongoing record online, this living record. So updating is an article is one alternative you might consider. You also might consider de-indexing the item from search engines. You might sunset crime reports, which means proactively deciding, for example, that this subset of our police reporting is going to be automatically either removed from our site or de-indexed from Google after a certain period of time. There are some organizations who have put those processes in place. You might anonymize information, simply go in and anonymize a child's name, right? And then discontinuing mugshot galleries is a big one. You know, back in the day, most journalists know that these mugshot galleries sprung up in a lot of newsrooms. At one point, about 40% of newspapers had one. And the idea was it was going to be quick money. Everybody wanted to see it, so it drove clicks. I know in my old newsroom, it was about the third highest traffic site on our site. It was actually a separate site, but a lot of organizations now are discontinuing those because they see the issue. And that especially is a good way to start considering issues of power and equity because one of the problems with unpublishing that is just now starting to be talked about in the industry more, and I'm so happy it is. And part of it is because of the cultural reckoning that we're all going through right now in society. But it is how inequitable an unpublishing policy is if you simply only serve the people who raise their hand, right? right. Because there are millions of people who need the same, quote, digital redemption that may never know that they can even ask for it. You start throwing in things, you know, race, socioeconomic status, the digital divide, you know, name a an aspect of our lives, right, that could potentially give you more or less power or equity to get this done. And so that's a, a big issue to start determining, okay, if we're going to take down the marijuana arrest for the mayor, should we be considering doing that for everybody we ever put on the news blog, right? Because they were charged with the same thing. So, and that's going to come up a lot in states like New York that are starting to expunge 
low-level marijuana arrests in the hundreds of thousands. There was a good piece by Kathy English, who used to be the public editor at the Toronto Star about that, that was specifically about unpublishing. And she was warning the industry that we're not ready for this. We can't handle the six requests that we get in a week right now, right? Because we don't have good processes, nothing is consistent. And so think about if a small newsroom, especially, and often those are the newsrooms who are covering a lot of low-level crime, if they start getting a barrage of those requests. Yeah. And, you know, we've, we've been talking a lot about crime reports. We're talking about, you know, things that journalists traditionally sort of cover as news or that news outlets publish, like the, you know, the crime log and the, the mugshot. I had my own experience last year with uh, unpublishing a news story, a feature story, actually. One of the things that, you know, last year was COVID. You know, it was COVID-19. That was kind of the thing that sort of drove so much traffic to our site. And the impact, how did that impact people's lives? And one of the things that we were encouraged to do was to go out and to, to try to talk to people in the community, or not go out because we couldn't meet people face-to-face, -face, but, you know, try to make connections in the community you know, find people who are doing, you know, great things or find people who, you know, maybe are struggling and need some help. Let's focus on them to try to help them out and sort of amplify the, the trouble that they're in so that they can get the services they need. And there was a woman who left a comment on one of our boards talking about the difficulty she was facing since she lost her job. And, you know, I'd written several stories about situations like this. And so, you know, I reached out, we had a conversation, I interviewed her and she was all, you know, you know, I don't know what to do. You know, she told me all of the things that she was dealing with and, you know, she had children and, you know, was single. And anyway, I wrote this story and then about a week later, she sent me a very frantic email in that, you know, everybody who knew her, her family, people who, you know, she hadn't talked to in years had seen the article and you know we're just pressuring her so much and we could see that there were people because you know they're trollish and evil people online who were judging her in our comments board and saying things well why don't you go out and work or why don't you whatever so it was clear that she was becoming sort of a target and she asked if we could take down the story and i took it to our took my editor and explained the situation you know, we talked we talk to the editor-in-chief, and, you know, eventually the editor-in-chief said, well, it's really kind of up to you, Mike. What do you think would be the best thing to do? I thought about it, and it's like, you know, this woman, you know, she was not looking for public notice. She was, you know, yes, she let it put a comment on our board, but we kind of amplified her situation. And in doing something that we thought that would help her was actually causing her a great deal of pain and stress. So we decided to take the story down. I mean, these things come from, from all types of angles in journalism. You just never know. Absolutely. And what you're speaking of is a great example of where this, I mentioned that unpublishing is not just a post-publication problem. It's a pre-publication issue that we need to think about. And one of the areas in which we need to think about it the most, in my opinion, is informed consent. What does that look like today, especially when you are dealing with potential sources that are not as savvy about right. 
this could live forever online, which of course is a misnomer and we can split hairs on that, but again, is likely to be available pretty easily, especially if you're someone who doesn't have a lot of information out on the internet, it's going to come up on the first page of Google, right? Right. And so informed consent practices really need to change. And I'll give you a short story. I was talking to an education reporter. This was couple years ago, I think. And she was telling me about a situation where she had written a story and it was about poverty in this one community. And of course she had a family, right? That she used to kind of put a face on the issue. And there was a child, a student at one of the schools that was named in the story. And about a decade later, he comes back and says, you know, it really paints a pretty bleak picture of my family. It's embarrassing. I would really like this down. And of course, I didn't speak to the gentleman, but she had, and she felt like he he really was pretty angst-ridden about this, and she wanted to help him. She went to her editors, and her editor said, absolutely not. And the more we talked, I finally asked her a question. I said, you know, can I ask you a question? She said, yeah. And I said, why did you use his name in the first place? And it totally stopped her in her tracks. And she said, well, because we always do. Yeah. And I think that brings up a point of the things we always did in the analog era sometimes have to be rethought in the digital age. And this idea of informed consent is one of them. And especially when we're using the names or dealing with people who for any reason are marginalized or vulnerable, especially children, right? There's another situation I know of, of a man who was raped repeatedly in prison. And he participated in an article when he got out of prison and later on, of course, felt this was a social stigma, right? And came back. And so, yes, he had participated willingly, but I do have to wonder There is a fine line, right? Because as journalists, we don't want to scare off our sources, but we do need to ensure that when we're dealing with people who may especially be less savvy with dealing with the news media and understanding how that content is going to work, that we're very clear about that. And back to the use of the child's name, just to wrap that up, the more we talked about it, it was fascinating. She said, I've never been trained on informed consent and I'm I've been an education reporter for decades, which I found interesting. You know, she's dealing with children and and families. And we talked about what did that child's name bring to that story? Or could it have been on the front end, especially in the digital age, now considering what what is happening here? Not that we want to, to shield everyone's identity, But when it's a story about a sensitive topic and that kind of thing, would it have sufficed to say a third grader at XYZ Elementary? And I think we can argue, yes, if we can use unnamed sources out of the White House left and right, I think we can make the public understand that it's not a trust issue with us when we are shielding a vulnerable person from being identified in a sensitive story. Deborah, what resources are available for newsrooms so they can learn more about unpublishing? 
you know, it's a dedicated site related to, you know, unpublishing. And that's where I'm still wrapping up the tools I'm creating. Mm -hmm. I'm doing one with the Chattanooga Times Free Press, which is an intake process because making that process consistent is really important, especially from a reporting or an action tracking standpoint. Mm-hmm. And then with two paper or one paper and one broadcast organization in Missouri, I'm working on some pre-publication practices and a set of basic standards. So those will be available, but there is also a policy repository on the website. Right now we've got about 60 in there. So it allows you to kind of see what's going on across the industry and frankly, how disparate it is. But we're asking people to contribute to those. And I'm willing to work with newsrooms. I get asked a lot of times to consult with people. So all I'm saying is feel free to put the site out there as a resource. And that way I can help people more one-on-one if they need it. Deborah, this has been a fascinating discussion. We've talked a very long time. I think we could continue to talk a very long time. I mean, these ethical issues are really about, I mean, what we do every day, it's about our policies and, uh, you know, our story choices and, you know, how we deal with our sources and, you know, how we deal with the long-term existence of this content that we're creating. What does it all mean? Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.